1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books and Sports, a channel on New Books Network. I'm Bob D'Angelo, and today our guest is Greg Larson, author of Clubby, a minor league baseball memoir. Greg, thanks for being with us today.
0: Thanks for having me, Bob.
1: Greg is a native of Minnesota and grew up a Twins fan. He was a clubhouse guy for his college team at Winthrop University and then spent two years as the clubhouse attendant. For the Aberdeen Ironbirds, Ironbirds, excuse me, in the Class A short season in 2012 and 2013, Clubby is Greg's second book. His first in 2014 was "Learn How Not to Suck: My College Story." Greg, tell us a little bit more about yourself and your baseball background.
0: Yeah, my baseball background is the most important thing you have to know is that I bet .091 my senior year of high school. And yet I still thought that I was going to be a major leaguer someday. That's really what propelled me into becoming a clubby in college and after college and minor league baseball, like a, so many other kids, I just wanted to be a professional ball player. And then when I got thrown into that world after college, my first real professional job experience in my early twenties, I realized, man, there's a really strange world here in the world of minor league baseball and there's players fighting each other. There's players walking out in the middle of games. There's guys living it, I, at any given time. I'd have guys living in my apartment on the, on the floor. And yet I still desperately wanted to be them. And that's so much of what this book is about is that tension between me realizing how difficult their lives were. And yet me still wanting to be these players.
1: Well, tell us how you became a clubhouse attendant with the Ironbirds. Did someone recommend you or did you see a posting online? How did you get there?
0: It was a strange scenario where I did see a posting online and so often those jobs are through recommendation. They're handed down from generation to generation, maybe more so at the higher levels like AAA and Major League Baseball. But um, at the low level, it's usually some sort of nepotism that gets you in. But for me, I just saw a job posting. I was a college English graduate and I thought, my only job experience is working as a clubhouse attendant for my college team. I could do worse than to work into professional, to work in professional baseball. And, you know, lo and behold, it was one of the most formative experiences of my adult life. Well, was the job what you expected it to be? In some ways it was like, it was strange how, it was strange how little I touched the ball field. My first season, my dad told me at one point, Because my duties included taking care of the team. I was the team mom. I would wash their laundry. I would feed them. I would house some of them. And my dad at some point asked me if I had gotten onto the field to throw the ball around or anything. And I said no. And he said, well, if you're not doing anything related to baseball other than washing jockstraps, then you may as well just be working at a hotel. And I thought, damn, he's right. And (laughs) that second season when I came back, I never thought I would come back. But when I did, I made a concerted effort to get on the field. And I would like take batting practice with the team. And the coaches would take me into the batting cage. And our our manager of the second season, Matt Marullo, he took me into the cages one night. And he gave me a hitting lesson. And in literally less than a minute, he fixed my swing. And those moments I realized was why I was there in the first place. And I had deprived myself of those moments for some, you know, for deep psychological reasons that first season
1: right and then you got to improve that 0.9 or 0.091 batting average as well
0: yeah finally <laughs> gonna hit my weight at some point here <laughs> were you prepared
1: for how much work you had to do in that job
0: i wasn't it was a shocking amount of work i mean don't get me wrong the ball players themselves have to do an insane amount of work even if it's sitting on a bus for 11 hours from maryland to vermont which in itself is a big deal but uh yeah i also had to put in my hours where throughout the day i was cutting up fruits and veggies for the team i was scrubbing pants after batting practice i was scrubbing pants after the game i lived in the equipment closet the second season in the stadium i was living in there so you know i didn't really know what i was getting myself into but i just threw myself in head first and let it happen
1: Right. And, you know, you had to wash uniforms and you had to put out food and, and give the listeners a sense of what a clubby does. It's like from the start of the day to, to the end, I know it was a long day for you too. Every day had to be a long day.
0: Right. Especially let's say the team comes in from a road trip at three, four 5.00 AM, which was a relatively common circumstance. They come in, they drop off all their laundry. I go about washing the laundry for a couple hours and by that time, maybe the sun is coming up and I can get a nap in before the players start arriving. And once the players arrive in the late morning, I start cutting up fruits and vegetables. I run up to the front office to get fan mail to deliver to our coaches and players. Maybe I sneak out the back to, to uh, swing a deal with the stadium beer supply guy. He texts me and says, I got a few cases of Budweiser for you. I go back there, give him a few bats and balls, and he gives me a bunch of beer that I can then give to our coaches and visiting coaches who will then give me more goodies and I'll just keep that cycle going. And then the early afternoon, it's basically me getting prepped for batting practice, cutting, getting the food out and making sure all the players are taken care of. Ideally at that point, I would go out and take batting practice, not usually take batting practice, but at the very least shag fly balls during batting practice, come in, wash all the batting practice stuff. Then the game starts and I got to focus like so much of the job was focused on food not food and alcohol quite frankly if right. i had let all of the laundry go nobody would have cared at all what they would have cared about is oh we don't have a post-game spread so during the game that's what my focus was getting the food out then after the game wash and laundry maybe get a few hours of sleep and wake up the next day and do it all over again
1: certainly and you were reminded of that several times when the food wasn't in their minds uh, adequate
0: oh yeah i mean who can blame them? There's been so much in the news this year, and I'm glad that people are starting to understand what this world is like where these players are – I mean I was perpetrated, I was perpetuating this system where I was feeding them leftover concession stand food. I was feeding them old hot dogs or I would feed them leftovers from – it was such a messed up scenario where I would go up to the VIP level, the, the luxury box seats, and I would pay the the kitchen staff a couple of bucks, and they would give me all of the leftovers from the VIP level, and then I would give that to the players. That's what they were fed. Um, and if they didn't get enough food, even if it was leftovers, I heard about it.
1: Certainly, tell us about uh, Jake Parker, the clubby who gave you some advice before
0: you uh, went up to Aberdeen. Jake Parker was, Jake Parker was a wheeler and dealer. He was the guy. When I was first going into the job, there's no HR department in a clubhouse and there's no real formal job training. My new boss in Aberdeen called me up as I was living in my parents' retirement community in Fort Myers, Florida. He said, on your way up to Aberdeen, you're going to go through Sarasota. In Sarasota is Ed Smith Stadium, the spring training complex for the Baltimore Orioles. Go there and see Jake Parker. He'll tell you what to do. I go see Jake Parker. He's this super ripped guy. He walks on a straight line. He's just like, he knows what he's doing. Obviously, he's taking care of the whole complex of minor leaguers and major leaguers in the spring training complex. And he just broke down for me what this was and like how much money I could expect to make. And he told me, you have to treat these guys like middle school kids because that's what some of them are. Turned out he was Yes, it was a metaphor, but he was literally telling the truth for some of them where a lot of these guys, um, especially from the Caribbean nations, they had stopped going to school at a young age because they had just completely focused on baseball. Maybe they got signed by the Orioles at 16 years old. And he basically told me that I needed to infantilize these guys in order to maintain control in the clubhouse. And he told me to put on weights, put on muscle, so that I can maintain control the clubhouse. Uh, neither of which I don't. I did. Hopefully. <laughs> um, but it was just this weird feeling of, man, I've grown up loving baseball and I thought I knew baseball. And when you enter that world with me in the first chapter of the book, you realize even as a baseball fan, this is alien. Even some of the language that they use this, like, like spread and all of these words that I hadn't heard before. It was a f- strangely familiar yet alien world.
1: You know, you wrote about several people in clubby, and there were some dominant personalities in the book. Um, Let's start with Alan Mills, who's – I'm in Tampa, Florida, and he grew up not far down the road in Lakeland, Florida. Uh, My impression was that he was either – he either didn't like you or he was just a grumpy old man. Which was it?
0: (laughs) Alan Mills, I think, was giving me a hard time. Alan Mills used to be a clubby himself. Well, let me take a step back. Alan Mills had about 12 years in the major leagues – he was our pitching coach in Aberdeen, both seasons I was there. And so he and I, he was this veteran. He had been served his time and I was the greenhorn coming in. And what I came to find out was Alan Mills, when he was in minor league baseball in the Yankees organization, he had been a player and a clubby at the same time, which is unbelievable to me. Um, and I think he maybe projected some of that onto me where we were so very different, but there were these strange similarities between the two of us. I think he liked me and I think I liked him, but as much as I liked him, I also had a hard time with him. And I also got frustrated with him where if I was having a hard time in the clubhouse, he might, he might whistle at me to get my attention. And, you know, the hitting coach would call me Fido because Alan Mills would whistle at me like I was a dog and these interactions that I had with them. But Lo and behold, by the end of my second season, it was Alan Mills who was on the pitching mound throwing to me to take batting practice with the team in a batting practice group with Mikey Stremsky, Trey Mancini, and then 0.091 Greg Larson. It was just that that was indicative of our relationship. And I I was worried what Alan Mills would think when he read this book. But I sent him an advanced copy and he called me up and after some initial you know, telling me, Hey, you made me the villain of this damn book meet. we Uh eventually got to the point where he was saying that, that he liked the book and he still felt like I made him the villain, which I don't agree with, but he liked the book because so many people don't get to see what that world is like. And so even that to me is analogous to our relationship those 10 years ago when we were working together in the clubhouse. Well, he was certainly the saltiest guy
1: that you ran into, and and of course, in the back of your mind, you're thinking, well, this is a guy that you know clocked Daryl Strawberry years ago during a brawl, so I can't really, you know, get in his face.
0: Oh yeah, Alan Mills was a part of a couple of famous brawls. That one in 1998, and another one in 2000 where the um, LA Dodgers bullpen fought some fans at Wrigley Field. Now, Alan Mills was in that bullpen. I never saw any video evidence to suggest that Alan Mills actually threw any punches in the in the stands, but there were multiple ejections from that game and suspensions after that. And Alan Mills was at the very least on the scene.
1: Well, getting back to the coaches, I mean they all wanted equipment, baseballs, more food, and you had to coordinate a ton of stuff in like, you know, very, very short time span. I mean how stressful was that? And I, You touched on it a minute ago, but I want these listeners to get an idea how, you know, you were sitting there juggling a lot of balls in the air.
0: Oh, yeah. There's there's no job description for a clubby. It's just whatever needs to be done in the clubhouse. There's so many things. I, everything from, I didn't realize until a couple of weeks, uh, a couple of days into the season that the trash cans in the clubhouse started to overflow. And I thought, my God, who's who's supposed to take out those bags of trash? And I realized, oh, that's me. I, right. and in that moment, I realized, oh damn, I'm the adult here, so to speak, even though uh, there are plenty of coaches who are older than me, twice my age in some cases. Yeah, it was just an incredibly stressful experience <clears throat> to the point where after those summers, I would be licking my wounds for months afterwards in the off season, where that off season between 2012 and 2013, I mean, I was just sitting around drinking booze and playing video games, didn't have another job, just living off of the money I made as a clubby my first season, all because it was such a stressful experience.
1: Yeah. And then uh, we've talked about Mills. And then, of course, you've got the Grim Reaper, Brian Graham, who was, if he wasn't the villain, he was a semi-villain in this book.
0: <laughs> oh, yes. I'm happy. I am more than happy to say that Brian Graham was at least a metaphor for the villain in this book, if there is a villain. Brian Graham representing the large, the the major league baseball executive infrastructure that be. Thank God. Brian Graham is no longer in professional baseball. Even now I still have a chip on my shoulder about that guy. Brian Graham was the uh, director of minor league player development in the Orioles organization. Um, He had this like, he had this steely stare, and he had this way of just like tilting his head back and staring down at people. And he, the the guy was several inches shorter than me. So it was this like shocking psychological effect that he would have. And he's a very intelligent guy. That's what made him so, I don't know what, so formidable as an opponent. But he was in charge of coming into the clubhouse, going out onto the field and watching the early season workouts and deciding who was going to get moved up and who was going to go home. And so the players, would refer to him as the grim reaper. And I thought, you know what? That's damn right. And he stiffed me on dues, which, um, that's a no go in the clubhouse. The, the dues system is changing now, but you're meant to give the clubhouse attendant a couple of bucks to cover food and all that. And it's customary for especially let alone a coach, but an executive in a major league organization to stiff me on the dues. uh,
1: I had it out for him ever since. (laughs) No doubt. And speaking, you know, he always ripped on you. He once gave you a $10 check and you ripped it to shreds sort of a, damn right. I did. Yeah. Nice metaphor there.
0: Yeah, that's right.
1: You know, in the book, you uh, expressed a lot of surprise when you found a salary list and realized you were making like three times as much money as the players. Um, That had to be a shock.
0: Yeah, that was a shock for sure. And I thought, I mean, those numbers that I saw, $1,200 a month, $1,250 a month in their uh, second season at that level, it was was depressing in a way because I saw my best case scenario, let's say hypothetically as a high school or as a college student, whatever, let's say I had been drafted like my dreams and I made it to that level. Would I have been better off? I don't know. It's it's hard to know what if. But seeing that salary scale really just cemented home, like, dang, I complain about the life that I have as a clubby here. But these guys, I don't know. It's I'm still having a hard time coming to grips with what exactly that means because I see all of these changes happening this summer. And I see people starting to understand what life of a minor leaguer is like. And yeah, I, I just don't know how much of my own stuff that I project onto those players and how much of it was me seeing it accurately. But either way, it was a sad realization. You know, there was a great analogy in Forbes Magazine
1: when they were talking about your book. And they said that nearly everybody in the organization, from the players, the manager, and the front office, was trying to squeeze six pennies from a nickel.
0: Right. It's so true. I mean, for me, that turned into swinging deals where, <laughs> you know, Oh yeah, talk about those. I mean, you said you
1: became part of the system, and you know, you looked at these guys that were friends, and they were giving you seven dollars a day, and they weren't making a whole lot of money. So, no, how'd you feel about all that?
0: I mean, at the time, I felt just this extreme guilt about it, but I just put put that guilt aside and tried to do everything I could to make a couple extra bucks, and so that would turn into me, you know, instead of buying new food for the players, I would just slip the the VIP level, a couple of bucks to get the leftovers and then feed it to the players and then charge the players for that. I mean, that's a money, that's a money making scheme on my part. I could have done better there. Um, I mean, I'm not going to disparage my former self too much here, but (laughs) it, it was this, I had this scam where I would, if a player gave me a broken bat, I would give them a new bat that they needed. And then I would take that broken bat to the, to the gift shop. And they would sell those broken bats for 20 bucks a pop and I would get $7 and 50 cents on top of it. Okay, fair enough. But then what they would ask for is for me to write who the bat belonged to. And, you know, on a piece of athletic tape on the handle, I would write down very honestly, I'd say, Manny Hernandez broke this bat, Sam Kimmel, blah, blah, blah. But what I came to realize is that a lot, of the, a lot of the players' names really didn't move off the shelves real quickly. But some names that did move off the shelf were Trey Mancini, who was on that team, and Mikey Stremsky, who was on that team. So then all of a sudden, I just flooded the market with Mikey Stremsky bats and Trey Mancini bats that just never had belonged to them in the first place. All just so I could move more of those and I can make another $7.50. Sure. It's just anything I possibly could to get more tips, to get, to get a couple of bucks from the front office and get a few more dollars from the uh, coaches. Mm -hmm. and of course the players had their own scams
1: they tried to work on you as well right
0: oh yeah i mean those guys they would try to get caps they would try to get they, they would come in saying oh i lost my cap and i need another one and i'd give it to them whatever who knows what they were doing with it one player i i need to provide a disclaimer that i don't know exactly that this player was taking bats so that he could sell them but one of our pitchers attacked another pitcher with a baseball bat And when the dust settled and we got the bat out of that pitcher's hand, we all kind of looked around and like, why why did he have a baseball bat in his bag so quickly? And during the game, I look inside of his bag and I see that he's got a dozen or more baseball bats, all of the same exact type that I gave the players. These really crappy, ash, rollings, bone-rubbed bats that nobody would... I mean, nobody would use these willingly. And... I thought to myself, why does a pitcher have not only one bat, but a dozen bats? And I thought, maybe he's going back home and he's selling them in the offseason. And I took those bats back. Do I? I don't know for sure that I was right. Maybe they were his. Maybe his agent had given them to him, even though he's a pitcher. I don't know. But it was just that kind of world where at the bottom of the pecking order, everybody's just fighting for their lives. Yeah. And, you know, getting back to scams too
1: and the food, you you talked about the food companies who would try to cut deals with you you and the concessionaires and Jake had told you that their intent was not to try to give you great food. but just try to cut in your profits.
0: Oh yeah. That was a big part. Like so much, so much of my life was trying to stave off these vultures in the front office or in the concessions in particular, who were trying to get my, a piece of my profits. Um, In the first season, the, the concessions manager tried to slap me with a a thousand a thirteen hundred dollar bill at the end of the season, saying that was for all of the leftovers I had taken. And I was just thirteen hundred dollars like ten percent of my revenue from that summer. And I was just so. Then I had to go into negotiation mode with this guy, and I only gave him four hundred twenty bucks. He got fired the next year. We had a much better guy. It it was just it seems so. I don't know what it seems so innocuous, but that's just what it's like in minor league baseball, where something as simple as something as simple as a couple of bucks and something as simple as a leftover meal. In some ways, it feels like life or death at that level. And that's what it was for me as the clubhouse attendant.
1: And, and the amazing thing about that, I mean, Ripken Stadium there in Aberdeen was like 35 miles from Camden Yards. But I guess in reality, it's more like a million miles away, I think is a good analogy for
0: that. Oh, absolutely. And, and Ripken Stadium is a beautiful facility as well. Uh-huh. Well, talk about the uh, two managers you worked at, with at Aberdeen
1: uh, Gary Allenson, Mug, Muggsy, of course, and uh, Matt Morello.
0: Muggsy, the first year, had gotten moved down from AAA Norfolk down to short season single A Aberdeen, Maryland. And just put yourself in his mind f- for that. I mean, Muggsy, five foot six, a little bristly mustache. These absolutely piercing blue eyes and this guy would just he's like a drill sergeant just walking a line everywhere he went he was straight up and down and this guy just kind of seemed angry that he not only existed in this place but he just seemed angry that he existed anywhere it felt and he had way too much of a hands-off approach with these players when he's coming from a level of AAA where guys are maybe in their 30s and they have a family and maybe they're on a free agent contract where they're getting a little bit more money and they just have a different life scenario. And then he comes back and he's trying to manage 18, 19, 20 year olds. He just, the, the clubhouse, we were cellar dwellers that season. And it all, I think trickled down from that, that culture of the manager just as checked out here. Cause there's a lot of talent. Josh Hader was on that team. We had uh Christian Walker was on that team and we had a lot of really talented guys. And, it, they're just a seller-dweller seller dweller team. Right. Then fast forward to 2013, Matt Marulo comes in as the new manager. And Matt Marullo has, comes from a great baseball stock. His f- grandfather, Lenny Marullo, was the last surviving member of the 1945 uh, Chicago Cubs World Series team. And Lenny Marulo comes in in his preseason press conference. He says, this game will always let you know how bad you are but you need good people around you to let you know how good you are. And that's how he viewed his role as the manager of that team. And it completely changed the culture of that clubhouse where, yeah, we had talented guys there too. Trey Mancini, Mike Stramski, a couple other future major leaguers. But the difference was that guys felt free to make mistakes and guys felt free to try new things. I mean, it's terrifying. You go from high school or you go from being a stud at some D1 school and then you're thrown into nowhere, Maryland, and nobody really cares what's going on there for a while. Uh, it's scary, and I felt like Matt Marulo really did a good job of nurturing those guys through that process.
1: Yeah, it's true, and like you say, they they're young kids, really, and and it's it's a shock uh, if you come out of high school as, as the the big dog, and all of a sudden you know you're a, you're a small fish in a huge pond.
0: Oh, for sure. Like those guys, th- there was probably a lot of the guys suggested that there was something kind of comforting about that of not having the spotlight, but it's easy to get washed. It's easy to take the foot off the gas in that scenario. You know, if if you're coming from the college world series, I remember Christian Walker in 2012, when he had got drafted, he had literally just come off college world series, victory spotlights on him, all these amazing cheering fans in Omaha. And then boom, you're a nobody in there and i think it's easy for them to take it too easy at that level
1: yeah and tell the listeners about how uh you converted that that uh closet into a sleeping
0: quarters how comfortable is that <laughs> yeah 2013 the team stopped paying for an apartment for me the, the my first season with the team they'd put me up in an apartment and uh you know i'd let a couple of players sleep on the on the living room floor. I mean, upwards of four at some points. Second season, they said they weren't going to do that anymore. They're trying to cut corners, all that kind of classic minor league baseball stuff. So I thought, okay, you know what? Free air conditioning, free internet. I got showers. I got everything I need in a a house inside of the clubhouse. I'll just blow up an air mattress in the equipment closet. So I put the air mattress in the middle and I'm surrounded by... (laughs) I mean, I'm just surrounded by baseball equipment and I put up a little desk on the side there on the, on the equipment shelves. And those first couple of nights I thought, yeah, I'm saving a couple of bucks, but am I saving my own sanity here? But like so many things in minor league baseball, it was shocking how quickly I adjusted to just living in a stadium equipment closet. And speaking of keeping your sanity, you had a couple of fun moments, for example, writing a fan
1: letter to one of the pitchers. Talk about that.
0: Yeah. One thing Jake Parker told me when I visited him in Sarasota, he said, do everything you can to keep these guys loose. And I took that to heart that first season. Um, Alex Schmarzo, a relief pitcher on that team, who was my best friend on that team, he was one of my favorites. Um, He was just feeling really down. And I thought, okay, how can I loosen up the clubhouse a little bit? And I wrote him a fake fan letter that said, Dear Alex, something to the effect of, I found your card in a box of tampons. I'm your biggest fan. Will you please sign this for me? And I, you know, put it in a little envelope and I put hearts all over Alex, all this. Put it up in his locker. And when he came in from pitcher's fielding practice, I said, Shmarzo, you got you got some fan mail in your locker. And he got st- he tried so hard to stifle his excitement. He just immediately said, it was like face lit up. And then he said, no, there isn't. I said, okay, check it out. And I hear him giggling about it. And it's just one of those things where at the end of, at the end of his tenure with the iron birds, I finally had to tell him like, Hey man, I wrote that fan letter. That wasn't real. He's like, yeah, I figured. And he, in that moment, he signed the card for me. And, I don't have a lot of memorabilia from that time, but the card that he signed for me from that fake fan letter, I still have the Alex Schmarzo signed card. It's not going to get me anything on eBay, but I will keep that piece of memorabilia for as long as I possibly can.
1: Yeah, it's a personal treasure. Yes. You know, and, and more seriously, the book also, you also in the book uh, detailed the tension between yourself and your girlfriend at the time. Uh, she was in South Carolina, you're in Maryland, and you're trying to have this long distance relationship. That could not have oh, been yeah. time.
0: No, I I think I didn't want to include that in the book, quite frankly, it would have been an easier story to tell without that. But I thought that I would be doing a disservice to the story if I didn't include that tension, because I think it's analogous to the tension that a lot of players experience with their own wives and girlfriends where me being gone those summers was hard for us where I would miss her or sometimes even worse, I would completely forget that she existed at certain periods. And maybe vice versa, where we'd just be completely disconnected. And then the off season, I think she could see how bad—not completely, but I think she saw part of the bad things that being in professional baseball was doing for me. Where you know I'd come back having lost a bunch of weights in a bad way, just like come back kind of emaciated, and I would just come back feeling a little bit feeling bitter and tired and i just felt stuck like what was i going to do was i going to be a clubby for the rest of my life what was i, I was playing make-believe and in that off season it was just this feeling of not doing anything feeling listless and she comes up to me and she says do you really want to go back to aberdeen another year because you're setting yourself up to have no other choice and she was right and i went back and it completely fractured our relationship yeah has uh, she seen the book? Not that I know of. I haven't talked to her in seven years. Okay. So I have no idea. <laughs> yep.
1: As a, as a baseball fan, I love reading about the inner workings of the game. And, and you know, certainly Clubby has a, a perfect bird's eye view of what's going on. So, uh, you know, you get to hear a lot of what goes on. And I wouldn't characterize your book as a tell all, but certainly revealing. I mean, do you re- did you intend it to be sort of a.
0: This is what's going on in in the clubhouse type book. You know, when I first, when I showed up, I didn't expect to write a book at all. I was just living my life, but I just started keeping track of things. And I was keeping an obsessive journal at that time. You know, by the end of my two seasons, I had 285 pages of notes of just conversations and all kinds of things that I experienced. And when I first set out to write it, I mean, the first thing I realized was, okay, these were not two seasons. Like this happened in minor league baseball all the time. Uh, There was not any particular, you know, there wasn't any Mickey Mantle getting drunk off his ass or anything like that. It was just me living my life. And I realized that I wanted people to know what this world was like. So I wrote it as an expose at first. It was just this like objective reporting and I was not a character in it. And it was super boring and it wasn't until one of my classmates in grad school saw that version of the of the book and she said, you know, I find it shocking that Greg isn't a character in this book given that he so obviously wants to be one of these players. And that was the moment where it all just kind of coalesced in my mind where I realized, damn, I have to be at the center of this and it can't be a tell all, but if I want to if I want people to know what this world is like and if I really do want some sort of change to come from how minor league baseball players are treated then it has to be a fascinating story first and the preaching or whatever it may be just can't be the core of it
1: right I mean there was a I could, I could just imagine if like Pete Previtt from the Yankees or or uh you know Josh Kawana with the Cubs had written a book that, that would have been like every every ball player that ever played for those teams would have been hiding oh <laughs> for sure because those men know and a certain, and especially Jim Bouton started with Ball Four. I mean, Jim Brosnan with with the uh, the long season and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Sort of touched on it, but Jim Bouton, I love Ball Four, and I look at it now and I'm thinking, my gosh, it's kind of lame now. It's not lame, it's tame. Excuse me. And um, considering what we read now, so certainly oh yeah, it was the template.
0: Yeah, I mean it's it's like watching Seinfeld. It's It's still great, but you have to realize that it is so great because it forced new territory and that if it seems basic, it's because so many people tried to replicate it after the fact. Right. Now, in
1: addition to writing your two books, and you've done some ghostwriting, I believe, uh, you're also a stand-up comedian. Is that right?
0: Yeah, I've been doing... Look, I'm an open micer, so stand-up comedian, I have to put in quotation marks. But yeah, I've been doing stand-up comedy technically since I was 19 years old, um, off and on here in Austin, Texas. I stopped doing it in uh, February, focusing on book promotion since then. But to answer your question, yes, technically.
1: And you're living in Austin
0: right now, is that correct? Oh, yeah, that's right. Moved here three years ago, and I love this city. Yeah, it's a lot of good music in that area too. Oh, for sure. Like you, any type of music you want. I mean, now things are starting to come back, but, uh, it, it's, there's no, it's an overwhelmingly amazing place to live where the, there's so much stuff to do. So many shows that you can go to that it's almost, uh, you don't even know which one to go to. Mm-hmm.
1: And I, I remember watching one of your, one of your routines and the, the, uh, the guy talking to you afterwards basically made a pretty interesting. Uh, comparison where you said you went from money ball to funny ball, which I thought was a cover <laughs> phrase. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think so. So uh, tell us, what is your next project? What are you planning on? Do you have any more books in the can or?
0: Oh yeah. Going? I mean, plenty of people, I think get the impression that I'm a clubhouse attendant who happened to write a book, but I'm an author who just happened to be a clubby one time. This just happens to be the story that found me. But right now I'm working on my third book, it is a novel. Um, I won't say the title of it, but it, it's a novel that I'm about 40% of the way through, and it's a love story based on some interesting experiences I had last year being quarantined with a woman that I barely knew. And uh, But it's a very novelized version of that experience. Okay.
1: Well, here's the point of the interview where I ask you if there's anything that I've missed that you really want to point out to the listeners.
0: The mic is the- yours. I appreciate that. The one thing that I want to point the listeners in the direction of first and foremost is an organization called Advocates for Minor Leaguers. It's this amazing nonprofit headed by Harry Marino and Garrett Brocious, two former minor league baseball players, one of whom Harry uh, was on the 2013 Aberdeen Ironbirds with me. But it's an organization meant to help minor league baseball players unionize and get better wages, help them get a living pay. And it's an organization that I think is doing fantastic work for these minor leaguers to get better treatment. Um, I am all for people getting compensated for the work that they do. And I think that that is a fantastic organization to make that happen. Also, secondarily, I would like to point them towards the book website, clubbybook.com. That's C-L-U-B-B-I-E book.com. There's tons of extra free content, deleted scenes. They can sign up for my newsletter. They can download the book. They can get signed copies. Whatever you want related to the book, you can get it there. And also my puppy penguin is squeaking on a little squeaker toy here. But that is everything that I have to point them towards at the end of this interview. That's great.
1: Well, we've been speaking with Greg Larson, author of Clubby, a minor league baseball memoir. Greg, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. Appreciate it, Bob. Thank you. And that wraps up another podcast on New Books and Sports, a channel on New Books Network. I'm Bob D'Angelo, and thanks once again for joining us. And remember, the game is what matters.